Right. I was told by my daughter that last week I missed uh, a question which I'd misunderstood for reference to eight. So I'll give that to start with. That was the mother on earth, that all is dark, nothing dark, nothing existent, every being is lucid to every other in breadth and depth, light runs through light, and so on. Uh, that passage about the universality of individuality on the level of the intellectual principle you can find in any of 5, 8, section 4, the opening of the section, page 414 in the McKenna version. Um, the next thing is that I will, once again, if you don't mind, put up this sort of sketch map, simply to give some kind of uh, orientation. The, there's the one, there's the intellectual principle of self-knowing of the one, and the space-time world with which we are familiar. Now, I'm afraid this week may be rather heavy. I, I um, threw out all the fun stuff and shoved it in next week and then decided afterwards that this was a bit of a mistake, but it was too late by then, it was gone. So you prepare yourself to be thoroughly bored. I hope that you have a state of mind for that. Um, we have shifted from here to the intellectual principle down to the world's soul uh, uh, and to nature on this level. And... Um, let me start with the world's soul as Logos, uh, which has the idea of intelligence, intelligibility, and also a, a formative principle. And uh, this is the this level here, um, the world's soul as Logos. And let's start with the nature of the soul. And for these passages, I'm going to use Armstrong's translation rather than the McKenna. Now, these passages are, I think, notoriously not very easy to sort out, but I think one can make some sort of sense of them. So I'm going to have a go uh, and try and say at least what they mean to me. Uh, this is the first of the excerpts. For action must take place according to a rational principle and is obviously different from the principle. But the principle itself, which accompanies and supervises the action, cannot be action. He's taking an analogy of ordinary action on our level. If then it is not action but rational principle, it is contemplation. And in every rational principle, rational principle here standing for logos, not noose, logos, uh, rational principle, its last and lowest manifestation springs from contemplation and is contemplation in the sense of being contemplated. In other words, before the action there is the conception of a form or goal or mode of action, uh, which is the object of contemplation, which then works itself out on, in, in the external active level. But the manifestation of the principle before this, before the actual action on the plan, is universal. One part in a different way. The part which is not nature but soul. The other is rational principle logos in nature and is nature. So he's got these two um, uh, broad divisions. In fact, he breaks them down to three. This is why it gets complicated to some extent. 
but he's got these bro- these broad divisions. Uh, and remember the passage I quoted to you more than once when he said we divide the better to understand. These divisions are not different things. They are uh, simply a mode of getting to grips with this sort of thing intellectually. But he's got it divided into the soul aspect which is bound up in itself and being bound up in itself is bound up in its source and he's got the, uh, the, the nature aspect or logos which is the um, idea as it were behind uh, natural phenomena now I'll come back to that in, in, in due course and clarify it a little further but that's the first thing is that clear as far as it goes? Okay, it, 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 it's, it's uh, tricky, this passage, or these passages. Uh, and then he goes on, but nature possesses, and just because it possesses, it also makes. Making for it means being what it is, and its making power is coextensive with what it is. But it is contemplation and object of contemplation for it is a logos. Um, and then he moves on to say, I put words in the mouth of nature, personified, and nature says, I, but I do not draw, but as I contemplate, the lines which bound bodies come to be as if they fell from my contemplation. What happens to me is what happens to my mother and the beings that generated me, for they too derive from contemplation. And it is no action of theirs which brings about my birth. They are greater rational principles, logoses, and as they contemplate themselves, I come to be. What does this mean? But what is called nature is a soul, the offspring of a prior soul with a stronger life, that it quietly holds contemplation in itself, not directed upwards or even downwards, but at rest in what it is, in its own repose, and a kind of self-perception. And in this consciousness and self-perception, it sees what comes after it as far as it can, and seeks no longer, but has accomplished a vision of splendour and delight. Nature is at rest in contemplation of the vision of itself, a vision which comes to it from its abiding in and with itself and being itself a vision, and its contemplation is silent, but somewhat blurred. For there is another, clearer foresight, and nature is the image of another contemplation. Now, look, what, what, that's, that's, I suppose, completely foxed you now. You all know. Yeah, okay, right. I'm not surprised. It, remember, this is tricky. It's a passage which causes a lot of trouble. But uh, what he is basically saying, as I understand it, is that the, um, if you go to the intellectual principle, how do the intelligences in the intellectual principle come to be? Well, they come to be by a kind of uh, opposite motion. That is to say, it is the nature of the intellectual principle 
to contemplate its its own sort of inner nature. It there's no inner or outer on that level. That's a misnomer, but you know what I mean. It looks uh, towards its source, looking towards its source. It realizes itself as potentiality. The potentiality are the ideas. They are discriminated, but they are not separate in the manner of that passage that we had last week. Don't want me to repeat that, do you? Where the individualities contain all, and each is all, and each cell sees itself in all the others, and all are all. So there is distinction, there is individuality, but there is no division. Each contains the whole, and recognises the whole and itself in all others. Okay? So that, that is the nature of what goes on here. So by looking to its own source, it has also realised itself as potentiality. There is a potential plurality there, all right? So the one, in contemplating itself as one, becomes many. Does that make sense? So that's what's going on on this level. Now the manyness then flows outwards or shines outwards uh, to the level of nature and the level of the cosmos as we know it. Um, well, I mean, you've, some of you have obviously had experience of this level, but I mean, as, as, as is the common cosmos around us. On this level, there is, as we know them, no space-time. Right? I went into all that last week, remember that? The individuality, its own being, is its place. Place is in mind, in consciousness. Mind is not in a place. So there is a potentiality of space and time there, but being completely holistic, there is no space and no time, alright? Not as we know them. If you have space and time as, as we know them, then you have discursiveness, you have division, you have extension. Alright? Okay, okay, so far. So on this level, there is not that. There is simply one thing inhering in another. I mean, it's, it's not peculiar to Plotinus. I remember an Indian teacher who was asked by a physicist about some of these subtle levels, and he was, talking, he was trying to get at this sort of level. And the Indian teacher said, oh yes, that, that is very tricky, he said. Uh, in reality, we are all dancing on each other's heads. Uh, well, that's one way of putting it. You know, there's the, 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 the separation of one sees normally is not there. Um, when you come down to this level, you're getting to the level where there is discursivity, where there is separation, where there is space and time, and where individuality becomes divisive. It's also the element, uh, the, the level, where you have conflict. Remember the, the Upanishads, with, with, without two there is no, with, with two there is the possibility of suffering. Uh, and without this uh, two-ness, well, without some sense of two-ness, the I am, I or I contemplate, I awareness, aware of itself as awareness, that, that sort of vision, you don't get manifestation at all. But on this level, the, the divisiveness has taken over, if I can put it that way, all right? So, on this level, everything is divided out. Now, the, the, um, according to, let, let me go, go into my own language, according to Plotinus, nature is not simply inert matter. According to Plotinus, matter in itself is not knowable. He says it's so inert 
and so dead that it is invisible, it's intangible, it has no positive characteristics which make it graspable. It becomes graspable rather in the manner of a surface of water which you do not see until something is reflected on it. And then you begin to get sight of the surface of the water. The matter becomes existent on this level when it is, as it were, the backdrop for a play of forms and shapes. Does that make sense? So on, on this level, what you grasp really is not matter as such, but the play on the basis, on the substratum of matter, of a whole lot of ideas reflected discursively from this level and reflected in division from this level where they are in unity. Now, is, is that clear so far? And uh, that is why he says that, as it were, the... the, the um, the idea, what's the best, the form world of, or form cosmos, which lies behind the material creation, which is the basis within it from which it grows, that is a copy of this. And that's why he says on this level, nature is blurred. And also, uh, as it has come out into separation, the power of mind is less. I mean, it is, it is, oh, this, this begins to, it, it, this is Eastern, it, 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 it makes sense in an Indian tradition, it doesn't really make such sense in a Western tradition. Uh, are you used to thinking of the mind as powerful when it's active? Is that how you usually think? Yeah, that's what we're told, isn't it? The active mind, the mind of churning away, that is powerful. No, no, the active mind is weak. The mind is at its highest capacity when it doesn't need to act, it simply is. I'll come back to that later. Plotinus says exactly the same thing, but this is the sort of thing which is said in, in or the Indian tradition as well. The action is weak. Action comes because something must be achieved. There is lack. And this lack is manifested outwards in mental activity. We think because we do not understand. If we understood, we would not have to engage in discursive thinking. So from this point of view, powerful mind is ingathered mind. In its wholeness, possessing the intelligence of the cosmos within it and at rest in that. So there's a different concept of mind and also there is a notion that this mind at rest, if operating, if operating is the wrong word, if, if being on this level can achieve very much more than mere activity. You'll find this thought all over the place. There's a, a sermon which I think quints throughout of the, um, the, the canon of Eckhart, but there's the, it was in there, the Pfeiffer sort of canon had it in, uh, but there's a sermon there where he describes the, the wretched holy man. Do you know Eckhart at all? Well, do you remember the description in that, uh, I can't remember which one it is, but the description in a sermon about a holy man who does all the wrong things. He's a sort of perfected, God-realized man, deified man in the sort of Christian mystical terminology. And this deified man, uh, Eckhart says, is completely uh, unpredictable. He's thinking in monastic terms that everybody else is uh, sitting around praying and he's sleeping or they're fasting and he's eating. He does all the wrong things because he's not 
in need of that sort of external discipline. But, said Eckhart, uh, he is more valuable than all the rest put together. Any kingdom that has one of these men in it is extremely blessed. And he achieves more than all the rest put together, not by acting, but by simply being there. It is the silence in the centre of the hub of the wheel. The silence does nothing, but without that point of rest in the middle, the thing wouldn't turn. That's the sort of thing, if that conveys an idea of it. Anyway, does that make sense? Um, so, uh, when you get out to this level, you're getting more onto less the, the union of subject and object, and more the perception of object by subject. The two divided off. And with this comes discursiveness, and with this comes weakness, and with this comes blur. And again, uh, remember what I, I said last week, and I meant that. Uh, I mentioned that the, it is usual to think of this level as the vivid level, and the inner levels as vague. But that is not true. It's the other way round. If you go from this level to the inner level and you get an experience of the inner level, the inner level is much more intense. It's, it leaves you in freedom, but it's much more vivid, it's much more powerful. And this kind of intense richness of experience is something which cannot be fully realised on the outer level. There is, in other words, in, in operation in nature, something akin to the principle that I'll come to, or the process I'll come to next week, according to um, Plotinus, in the operation of art. There, he said, you know, the artist always realises the idea insofar as the resistance of the material permits it. There is always this element of working with material and sometimes working against it. And um, it, uh, that exists also in the natural world. The, the idea is realised in an objective form, but it is never fully realised with the uh, complete vividness and intense life that it has on this level. That is, of course, where, where art comes in, because if, if the artist creates from this level, then the artist can create something here which can stimulate the um, viewer on this level to begin to see, not, as Blake put it, I hope I get this the right way around, not with but through the eye, um, so that you perceive the, in, the inner reality. And I'll come back to that next, next week, okay, when we get around to the arts. Does that make sense so far? I mean, you may not accept it, but this is, this is the sort of thing he's saying. So, um, yeah, he speaks of, uh, Plotinus speaks of the lower aspect of nature on the lowest as the forming principle. It's the principle which goes out even from the, the, uh, the plan, as it were, the blueprint behind the cosmos into the formative action. And he speaks of that as dead, as no longer able to produce a further principle to act. It's rather akin to the sort of stuff that Jakob Berner said he, when he looked at the external world. He said he is half dead. That was his words for it. He's half dead. Um, and it's not the real thing. And he talked in the same way. He talked about the inner cosmos as being much more vivid, much more alive, much more fluid, and so on, than the outer. Um, and I'm, I'm sure he's right. Um, the next thing about this is that 
this, I've, I've spoken of this in terms of something shining out or, or what have you. Sometimes it's spoken of in terms of things flowing out, but it's not really quite like that. Uh, this, there is, sorry, there is no actual absolute difference between these, the, but the principle that I want to get at is that is this, this is not a sequence in time. It is a sequence through time comes, which time comes to be, all right? So in, in the ordinary sense, it's not a sequence. Now, what that means is that the natural world has within it the intellectual principle, and the intellectual principle has within it the, the, that which is beyond number, the one, or the other way around. The one has within it the intellectual principle, and the intellectual principle has within it this. One thing inheres in another, participates in another. They are aspects of being, uh, both in the sense of becoming and in the sense of isness, all right? So uh, one comes back to this idea that every part contains the whole. You are not cut off. I mean, it, again, Jacob Berman's got this. Somebody said to him, where is paradise? And Berman said, in a way which was, I think, true, but not very helpful, you're in it. You just don't know it. Well, if you're in it and you don't know it, I mean, it's like the... That Wordsworth, one of the Wordsworth family, I remember once he decided he was going to become a tramp. But all things exist in some prior, in the sense of some more fundamental, if you detract or remove from that the material image aspect of it. And uh, from all this, the fact that things get weaker as they move out onto this external level you get the whole concept that Kathleen's uh, used in connection with Blake as, um, I mean, I think, draw it from Plotinus, got it from Porphyry, but Porphyry was, after all, Plotinus's, um, or at least not just Porphyry, other sources as well, but Porphyry was Plotinus's uh, disciple. But you have the whole notion of life as sleep. Now, here I start the business of trying to find quotations in this lot here. Ah! Um, he's talking at this point about materialists who, who try to deal with arguments against the solidity and force and reality and so on of matter in a way in which Dr. Johnson tried to deal with Barclay. Remember the, uh, I can't remember the exact quotation, Kathleen will probably remember it, but somebody said, how would you deal with Barclay's arguments? And he said, more or less, I, I refute him thus and kicked a stone down the street, which is not the point. I mean, it's, uh, it's entirely beside the argument that Barclay uh, um, used. Well, he's been talking about people who keep on saying, well, matter is real, it's got power, it's got force, and so on and so forth. And this is, this is how he ends up with the peroration towards the end of this. This is in 366, uh, 366 it Thus far, we have been meeting those who, on the evidence of thrust and resistance, identify body with real being and find assurance of truth in the phantasms that reach us through the senses. Those, in a word, who, like dreamers, take for actualities the figments of their sleeping vision. The sphere of sense, the soul in its slumber, for all of the soul that is in body is asleep, and the true getting up is not bodily, but from the body. In any movement that takes the body with it, there is no more than a passage from sleep to sleep, from bed to bed, 
The veritable waking or rising is from corporeal things, for these, belonging to the kind directly opposed to the soul, present to it what is directly opposed to its essential existence. Their origin, their flux, and their perishing are the warning of their exclusion from the kind whose being is authentic. In other words, if you move on to this level, again, it's something which ties in with Indian thought. If you, if you move on to this level, you get what in India is known as the realm of death, and I was traditionally in the, in the religions over in the West. It's the realm of death because nothing lasts. I mean, even your fingernails you have to keep on cutting off. You have to keep on recreating your ego and your self-image. Um, uh, as you live in your body, it withers. Uh, everybody you cling to disappears at some point or other if you don't disappear yourself. There is nothing that you can create that will last. I mean, even as an artist, you must know that. Think of the wreckage of art that strews Europe, uh, and so on. Nothing abides, and this unabidingness is taken as a sign of unreality. Um, that which abides from the point of view of flux, remember there is no abiding in itself, but from the point of view of flux, that which abides is taken to be real, and in that sense true. And um, uh, this is the... One of the pages has gone totally, I don't know where that's gone. Anyway, never mind. This is, this is the kind of thing one becomes subject to when one's capering about in the world of matter. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, on this level, then, there is... One is asleep. And what is more, it is possible to exist, according to Protinus, as in Blake, on more than one level so that you can be asleep to the higher levels as far as this level is concerned, but the intuitive level has its own life elsewhere. And integration brings all of them together in full consciousness. Otherwise, there are phases of the soul of which one is not always aware. And um, the, the other thing about this, apart from the call to wake up, is, of course, the, the nearness of this kind of notion to the whole notion of Maya, which is unreal reality, or real unreality, whichever way you like to put it. But it is something which is not what it appears to be. And uh, from that point of view, it is necessary to rise above it in due course. The two aspects of the intellectual principle, I could perhaps, going back to that for a moment, the way in which there are these two aspects and they uh, um, mirror these two directions in the intellectual principle. Remember the description that Plotinus gave of this as a light shining in itself, and that as a light shining outwards, as light diffused. That will give you some sense of it. There is not much difference but the difference is all important. A hair's breadth. It is not a different thing. It is a different mode, however you like to put it. But you see what I mean? It's very close and yet totally different. All right? Now, is, is that okay so far? I told you it's going to be heavy. Yes, it really is. You're in, in for a hairy time of it tonight, I'm afraid. It really is tough. Um, it goes on like this, too. It gets worse, I can tell you. Uh, 
the next thing is that um, it might be easier at this point, briefly, to switch over to the world of myth, whatever myth may mean, and whatever myth means, it isn't what it is normally taken to mean, I don't think. And if I can find the right quotation, there we are. This is Plotinus discussing, or should be, Plotinus discussing the same thing, except that it's in the wrong page, I think. Never mind, never mind, I know where it is. There we are. Protinus one named these three Uranus, Kronos, Zeus. He picked up the, uh, the stories of the Greek gods. Now, if you remember, Uranus was the heavenly parent, Kronos was the first ruler, and there is an extremely cruel story about Kronos that uh, Cronus had, uh, there was a prophecy that one of Cronus's children would overthrow him. So he uh, swallowed his children, ate his children, swallowed them up, until the last one came along, Zeus, and Zeus hid in the womb of his mother, and when Cronus was about to get into bed with her, he nipped out with a pair of scissors or a knife or something and castrated his father and power passed to Zeus, and Zeus became the ruler of the world. So it's a very bloodthirsty story. But according to Plotinus, who ignores the sort of bloodthirsty aspect of it, what it refers to is the fact that, that Cronus is the firstborn and holds all its creations, all the ideas, all the intelligences within itself close to the source. Because that is the realm of freedom from suffering, there's no suffering, it's the fullness of beauty, it's the fullness of light, it's the fullness of intelligence, it's the fullness of life. And so that is, the, according to him, the sense of the myth, but being creativity itself, it could not fail to create, and one child, Zeus, goes out into the external world and becomes ruler of an external and inferior copy universe. And uh, this is the passage where Plotinus speaks in this way. Ignoring this world, Kronos, intellectual principle, claims for himself his own father, Uranus, the absolute or one, with all the upward tending between them. And he counts all that tends to the inferior, beginning from his son, Zeus, the all-soul, as ranking beneath him. Thus he holds a mid-position, determined on the one side by the differentiation implied in the severance from the very highest. In other words, this is manifest, that's unmanifest, there is subject and object, even though united here, there is no two there, no subject, no object. Um, he holds a mid-position, determined on the one side by the differentiation implied in the severance from the very highest, and on the other by that which keeps him apart from the link between himself and the lower. He stands between a greater father and an inferior son. Now, if you take that passage, it's relatively easy, isn't it? Does that not seem so? If it doesn't seem so, I've lost that point. But the, 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 uh, the point I wanted to make is that for Plotinus, and I'll come back to this next week, myth 
so far from being nonsense or fairy stories or something of this kind, um, is a way of talking about, if you like, the vertical dimension in life and in art in a way which makes it comprehensible, communicable, easy to follow. The stories are marvellous. You take them as stories and they have this resonance. That's his view. Whereas if you put them... Uh, I mean, I've, I've given you the first version. The first version is jolly difficult to follow. You have to really work at it. When you come to the story of Cronus and Zeus understood in this kind of way, it becomes very simple. It's easy. And this is the beauty of myth for Plotinus. And that is the function of myth. And, of course, myth and art come very close together. Uh, I'll come back to this because there are a lot of uh, epistemological questions, the, the sort of things I have to take up in the last lecture. But, uh, you know, the, the... How do you think of myth? Do you think of myth as true? Some of you are nodding. Yes, well, that's, 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 that's the ones on the one side. Do any of you think of it as untrue? Oh, that's a myth. C.S. Lewis said that myth was about true things and that allegories are just using a device. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, would, I would agree with C.S. Lewis. I think he's right. But um, the thing is that myth has been distinguished from, for instance, history. And you are told that certain things are myth and other things are history. Yeah. Um, immediately using the myth, uh, the thing that comes to my mind is what's the physical world that we think about it because of the myth of Zeus? Was it an accident? <laughs> no, Plotinus would say certainly not. There is no, no room for as accident in the cosmos. No, not, not according to him. No, it was the inner nature of things. Uh, the whole process, well, it's not a process, but one has to use this language, but what we are calling process sprang from the nature of things and was not accidental. It is the, it is the, the nature of things that produce this, except that it's not a temporal production. <coughs> Um, but uh, anyway, uh, if, you come, if you come to look at things like history, I mean, history to me is a myth in the pejorative sense. I mean, it doesn't exist. Why do you have to keep on rewriting history? Um, if you look back at history, I mean, how many versions of history are there? We have, well, many of us have been subjected to the Marxist myth of history with great savagery for some time. And, uh, of course, now it uh, tends to have been exploded. It is regarded as nonsense, but for a while it claimed to be something called scientific. Wissenschaftlich, I suppose, but uh, it was systematic, but it's, it was certainly not true in any direct literal sense. In other words, what I'm, what I'm coming back to is that this, this is another instance of the breakdown of conventional categories. Myth versus truth is not that simple. What is taken to be true is often myth, and myth is often not false but true. It depends how you take these things and so on and so forth. But I'll come back to all this, but I, I simply want to point this out in passing because I will have to come back to it um, in due course. And the, this, this um, business of Uranus, Kronos and Zeus is mentioned elsewhere uh, too. And then another thing that Plotinus comes out with, he says that there, this is... Uh, always exists as an inevitable part of the total cosmos, but he also has built into it, and to that extent he 
he di is differentiated from, say, the Indian view of things, but uh, he also has built into it great cycles of time. You know the so-called myth of the Phaedrus, the Plato's Phaedrus? Do you, do, do you know the dialogue at all? Some of you do. Some of you don't from the looks of it. Anyway, in the Phaedrus, there is a great cycle of time, the great cosmic year which goes its round. And uh, when it is completed, all the gods and all the enlightened souls of men gather together and they join Zeus and they look towards the, the one, towards the spiritual source, and light pours out on them. And um, this is picked up by Protinus, who uses it in Aeneid uh, 5.8 in the same way, uh, saying that all, all these come together, not only together with Zeus, but in Zeus. They are subsumed in Zeus in this act of contemplation. In other words, Zeus is within you. It's an aspect of your own consciousness. It's the, the cosmic, the lowest sort of cosmic level. Um, retreating into that, they then contemplate the higher intellectual principle within themselves, and retreating into that, they then merge with the one, in, if they are able to go that far, if they go as far as they can on this, this, uh, in, in this way. And um, I would moot something here. This is not Plotinus, this is me, but I have said before that it's perfectly clear in Plotinus, this, this level is discursive and temporal, this level is not, it's eternal. This level is timeless, that is Plotinus. But uh, it, it has always, or it has for some time seen to me, that time can only exist as an aspect of consciousness. And when consciousness fragments, time comes into being, and also that time changes with consciousness. And that if the whole uh, of the human race, or a large part of it, were to become enlightened tomorrow, the nature of time would change, and change radically. This, this seems to me fairly clear. And uh, if that sort of thing is implicit in Plotinus's use of the myth of uh, Zeus from the Phaedrus, or everybody coming together with Zeus and looking to their source, then it implies that there is something akin to the Indian yugas. There is a differentiation between a state of being near the source and a state of being far from the source. And of course, in those cases, time itself will change. If you are near to the source, time slows down. If you become the source, there is no time. If you are experiencing yourself as absent from the source, that is to say, you experience the source as absent from you, as non-existent, but you are absent from the source, then time speeds up. And if you take it that subject and object are linked together as one, and this is becoming clearer even from the, the side of uh, the philosophy of science, and I'll come back again to that in this case of epistemology in the last lecture, but uh, if you take it that that is one, then there is absolutely no reason to assume that that temporal shift is simply in your own awareness. I suspect it is a shift in the structure of the cosmos, which is part of your mind. Um, you come back to this life as a dream and the need to wake up. And I meant I could find the passage, so I haven't brought that, so you've escaped that. But I'll see if I can dig it up for lecture five. But somewhere or other in Fire Ardent, he says the same 
something which is, well, not the same thing, but something which is beginning to envisage this as a kind of possibility. He said you, that science cannot be judged from inside the world of science. If, as a scientist, you want to judge the world of science, you have to get outside the world of science. He's thinking in objective terms. You shift to another objective world. And he said it doesn't matter how cranky it is, as long as it's different. You shift outside, and he said that from the point of view of science, the world you shift to may appear as dream, but from the point of view of the new cosmos, science may appear as dream, and indeed our life may appear as dream. And you then begin to shift into the whole series of relative worlds and relativity of consciousness and so on, plurality of worlds, which has been a recurrent idea in Europe and, uh, of course, is found all over the place in the Indian tradition. Uh, especially in the Yoga Vasishta, there's a lot of it in there. The, uh, well, so far, this is, this is the cosmic structure, okay? You're stra staggering along this far. I'm sorry, it is heavy going. I, I, as I told you, I cut out all the jokes. Uh, they'll come in next time. You won't be able to contain yourselves next time if you come back. You'll be laughing and laughing. Uh, having got the universal structure, what about human beings? Well, Plotinus never actually says this, but it seems implicit in this whole way of thinking that human beings, being self-conscious on this level here, and having within themselves these levels available potentially to consciousness, are, as it were, the turning point of the cosmos. They are the far reach into darkness turning back towards light, if I could put it that way. Does that make sense? Uh, and one comes with this, of course, into the whole notion of the way. Uh, he seems to have this implicit, but he never formulates it in a way like that at all. And I point that out because I don't wish to foist onto him something which is not his responsibility. But he points out that the soul is linked to the intellectual principle as well as to the external. For the soul is many things and is all is the above and the beneath to the totality of life. And each of us is an intellectual cosmos linked to this world by what is lowest in us, but by what is the highest to the divine intellect. By all that is intellective, we are permanently in that higher realm. Notice that we are permanently in that higher realm. But at the fringe of the intellectual, we are fettered to the lower it is as if we gave forth from it, from the intellectual, some emanation towards the lower, or rather some act, which, however, leaves our diviner part not in itself diminished. In other words, the action on this level is going on in a partial glimmering consciousness. As T.S. Eliot put it, to be conscious is not to be in time, um, on this level, if you're, you're bounded by this level, then you are asleep, you are dreaming, you are fettered on this level. But there is an aspect of your mind which is free from that, even if you are not aware of it. That, that is the, it, it's an interesting kind of idea, and one which I suspect is true. Um, yeah? Uh, that one, uh, that's 343, page 169 in the McKenna. Sorry, I keep forgetting to give these references. Uh, the, 
the soul then is stuck here, rather like the prisoners in the cave, in Plato's, again, myth of the cave, and it can either look like the prisoners towards the shadow world, it can either look outwards, in which case it, it goes out, out of itself to something which springs from inside it, it appears outside, it bounds it, but it is only its own nature at its most differentiated, grossest level. Or it looks within itself and finds all that within itself. So it can go in two directions. And the trouble, as Plato pointed out in the myth of the cave, is that the mind being directed outwards is constantly concerned with a play of shadows. Or as Locke said, he didn't succeed in answering his own problem, but as Locke said at the beginning of the essay of human understanding, the, eye, um, the mind is like the eye in the head, it sees everything except itself. So uh, you are in only partial possession of knowledge while you are chasing things outside. You have also to chase things inside, or not things inside. And then, of course, you get rid of the inside and outside distinction altogether anyway. But there you are. So you have got the outer direction. Now, again, there is an evaluation in all this which is completely different from the modern way of looking at action and so on. Um, in the same way, human beings, when weak on the side of contemplation, when they are unable to move into consciousness within themselves, find in action their trace of vision and of reason. Their spiritual feebleness unfits them for contemplation. They are left with a void because they cannot adequately seize the vision, yet they long for it. They are hurried into action as their way to the vision which they cannot attain by intellection. They act from the desire of seeing their action and of making it visible and sensible to others when the result shall prove fairly well equal to the plan. Expressed, but I think, I, I read it in the light of Indian things, of course, but I think that what lies behind this is again this double direction. The intellectual principle is the perfect creator because it gazes inwards. Gazing inwards, creation comes to be. It is not an action, it is spontaneous, it happens completely. And, I mean, that's still true of an awful lot of things in our own lives. If, uh, if you tried to breathe, if you said, right, I'm sick of this, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to control this, I'm going to direct this, and you started giving yourself instructions to breathe, you'd choke before very long. You make an awful mess of it. If one begins to analyse things and think them out, you, it's very, very difficult to do them at all. You won't be able to walk across the room. Um, there are stages when analysation is necessary, but uh, analysis is necessary, but on the whole, these things are automatic. And similarly with growth, I mean, it's something which takes place naturally because of the nature of the body, and Plotinus would say because of the nature of the intelligence in the body, which is also your intelligence. So it's something which looks after itself. Uh, and what you have got here is a process both of creation and of action, which is rather different from the sort of uh, concept that you have knocking about in the West usually. I mean, normally, because of the um, 
theological tradition has thought of God as purely objective. You've had two versions of God. You've had a God who was engaged in history, or you've had a God who was a clockmaker, who built a clock, wound it up and walked away and left it to run down. Um, uh, and this is not that. There, there is rather a living link which cannot, in the nature of things, be broken. To break it would be to not to exist at all. It is there as the, as the inner nature of things, and it is not automatic like a clockmaker, but it's spontaneous. It just goes its own way. And, of course, this is a great principle in life. You've probably observed it. How often is it not true that it's best to leave things well alone? They look after themselves. You don't have to keep on meddling and controlling and directing. The more meddling you do, usually the worse it is. Well, coming down to this on the level of action, you get something of the same sort of thing. I think that what Plotinus is getting at in that passage is the kind of thing that you find in the Gita. You know, Gita 2.45, um, the concern of the Vedas is the three gunas, the three qualities of nature, be without the three gunas, O Arjuna, um, ever firm in purity, uh, independent of possessions, possessed of the self. And that is taken as the basis of correct action. Correct action comes not by involvement and commitment, but by universality in inner vision, which being universal leaves you free even if you are called upon to act. Another way of putting it would be to say that you no longer own your action. Action flows, you remain in universal freedom. And that, I think, is what Protinus is getting at when he speaks of these two modes of action. Uh, attenuation if the doer was aiming only at the thing done, in other words, was concerned simply with the results, with the, the object of action, uh, then you get attenuation, but complement if, um, if he is to possess something nobler to gaze upon than the mere work produced. It's a different mode of action, and it is a mode which is restful. And one comes back again to the sort of thing that was said just above about the man of action being weak. If you are constantly called upon to act, to realise, to busy yourself in the world, then this is a sign of insufficiency, it's a sign of weakness. This is diametrically the opposite of the modern way of thinking, where usually you praise people who are always buzzing and bumbling about the place. I mean, the world is full of them, is it not? Um, yes, that reference is uh, 38... Four, the, um, wait a minute, I got the right page. No, I think I've lost the page. Where are we again? Um, it's flipped over. Just a moment, just a moment. Um, two, three, oh, that's right, yes, that's right. Uh, not the end of the section, but near the end of the section. And McKenna, it's page 237. Uh, and this is again used or expressed in the language of myth. That, that comes in Aeneid 1.6, where Plotinus speaks of a person whose awareness is directed purely outwards and says, is there not a myth of somebody who looked 
at his reflection in water and drowned to tell you of the results of this. In other words, he uses the Narcissus myth as an image for this. It is a dissipation of selfhood in the pursuit of external images. And this comes back to some of the things that I was saying earlier in one of the earlier lectures about the, sort of the, the role-playing. It has its place, but it's no final answer, no final answer at all. If instead of looking outwards you look inwards, especially if these, these levels become lively, uh, then you um, are turning into the source of your own power, your own inner nature, the source of energy, the source of intelligence. And this uh, transforms the, the whole nature of activity and the whole nature of uh, your own being. This is Plotinus's comment on, on this aspect of things. He's speaking in, this is 167, uh, he's speaking in terms of beauty, because this, this Aeneid is concerned with the nature of beauty, and he takes beauty up until finally he gets it manifest here, and this is the source of beauty. And he says, for this, the beauty supreme, the absolute and the primal, fashions its lovers to beauty and makes them also worthy of love. And for this, the sternest and uttermost combat is set before the souls. All our labour is for this, lest we be left without part in this noblest vision, which to attain is to be blessed in the blessful sight, which to fail of is to fail utterly. For not he that has failed of the joy that is in colour or in visible forms not he that has failed of power or of honours or of kingdom has failed, but only he that has failed of only this, for whose winning he should renounce kingdoms and command over earth and ocean and sky, if only spurning the world of sense from beneath his feet and straining to this he may see. That is the kind of importance he attached to it. There are qualifications on some of the things there in other contexts, which I will come back to. Now, the ultimate uh, end of this, according again, Plotinus doesn't bring this out, but it seems to me to be implicit in some of the things he says. He does speak of living in union with the one, of realising the one, of um, being so possessed of that vision that one is never out of it. That, that he certainly does speak of. But he also speaks briefly and speculatively in passing of some of the other possible implications of this. Uh, here is the passage I'm thinking of. To, this is 587. Uh, to me, moreover, it seems that if we ourselves were archetypes, ideas, veritable being and the idea with which we construct here were our veritable essence, then our creative power too would toillessly effect its purpose. As man now stands, he does not produce in his work a true image of himself. Become man, he has ceased to be the all. Ceasing to be man, we read, he soars aloft and administers the cosmos entire, restored 
to the all. He is the maker of the all. We're getting very near to certain passages in Blake. Um, You're also getting near the Christian mystic's deified man. And of course, uh, another thing that chimes in with this is some of those terrifying Indian sages, Matarishwan, wasn't it? Um, uh, Some of the sages in the Ramayana who were possessed of very unusual abilities. Those stories are certainly uh, have a basis of truth in them. If you get anywhere near one of those Indian teachers, strange things happen. You're not in the ordinary world at all. Very strange things. Anyway, there you are. There, it, there does seem to me in that passage to be an implication of, uh, if you like, the perfectibility of man, an idea that, uh, and woman too, I use man generically, I'm not into uh, sort of sexual politics or gender politics, but uh, the, um, the, there, there is something which has been poo-pooed that we are told we must never aspire to. My reaction to that, I think, is the reaction of Churchill. I believe that on one occasion in the 1890s, when he was in a dinner party, he leant over to his next-door neighbour and said, we're all worms, of course, but personally I like to think of myself as a glowworm. There is also, in this whole notion of turning inwards and possessing in a way, possessing, I mean, you don't, it's not on, it's not the ego possessing, it's being possessed by, would be near it, but being filled with this inner level, permanently, that implies, obviously, a double level of consciousness. It implies consciousness operating on the outer level, aware of the external world, as long as one is in it, and also it implies an inner level of consciousness which is above that and free of it. And this, again, is made absolutely explicit. I won't bother you with the quotation, but you can find it in 1413, page 42, uh, when that monstrous uh, brazen bull, which was produced by a Greek tyrant, is mentioned. Somebody says, oh, they well talk in this way. You know, you're possessed of the, uh, of the all good all the time. But supposing you were stuck in this bull, it was an instrument of torture. It's a large brazen bull with a door in it, and the poor victims were shoved into it and a fire was lit underneath until it got red hot and as they screamed the open mouth of the bull bellowed this was a very famous instance of this torture mechanism and uh, Protinus is almost humorous on it he said of course it is idle to pretend that it would be a comfortable lodging (laughs) Um, but he, he insists that even there there would be two levels there would be the outer human being screaming in pain and there will be an inner level possessed of the all-good and totally undisturbed bite. So he's quite serious about that. There is a, there, there is a double level of consciousness coming there uh, in at that particular point. And that double level also operates in teaching. How's the time going? Uh, Lord. Uh, uh, that operates in teaching when it comes to the teacher dealing with the pupil... Um, This is one of the recurring cruces of this kind of situation. The sage then has gone through a process of reasoning when he he expounds his act to others. But in relation to himself, he is vision. Such a man is already set 
not merely in regard to exterior things, but also within himself, towards what is one and at rest. All his faculty and life are inward bent. Now, obviously, that's not meant in some crass literal sense, because otherwise he wouldn't be talking to somebody outside. Perfectly aware of the external world, perfectly aware of other human beings, perfectly aware of their needs. But the uh, sense of identity is... cosmos than this and these are vision in the sense that there is even on that level no distinction between subject and object the two join together in, in perception so knowing on that level is direct cognition from that level the sage speaks when he speaks he speaks discursively he has to argue he has to reason somebody comes along and says what about this what about that he's got to produce an argument because that is the language of this level. There's no point in speaking on this level in the language of that level. You wouldn't be understood. So there is a difficulty of communication. And the double level that I mentioned in the case of the person being tormented is also found in the case of the teacher. And indeed, this is, this is a recurring aspect of things. Now, from all this, there begins to emerge, of course, the question of the path and the idea of the path is mentioned by Plotinus more than once, but the, um, the path is essentially a turning inwards, it's a turning back, it's a regathering of the wholeness while you are alive on the external level. So you've got both, both coming together. And um, the nature of the path, well, I've mentioned the whole business more than once before because it, it comes up again and again. That is, that is the uh, way of things. But you remember he, when he was speaking about the one, he came out with this. The main source of the difficulty is that awareness of this principle, of the one, comes neither by knowing nor by intellection neither by knowing or intellection, nothing to do with the division between subject-object, that discovers the intellectual beings, but by a presence overpassing all knowledge. In knowing, soul or mind abandons its unity, it knows something, that something is distinguished from itself, the unity is gone. In knowing... Um, the soul or, soul or mind abandons its unity. It cannot remain simplex. Knowing is taking account of things. That accounting is multiple. The mind thus plunging into number and multiplicity departs from unity. Our way then takes us beyond knowing. There may be no wandering from unity. Knowing and knowable must all be left aside. Every object of thought, even the highest, we must pass by, for all that is good is later than this, and derives from this, as from the sun or the light of the day. Not to be told, not to be written. In our writing and telling, we are but urging towards it. Out of discussion, we call to vision. To those desiring to see, we point the path. Our teaching is of the road and the travelling, the seeing 
must be the very act of one that has made this choice. Very important, the role of the teacher, a direction, an impulse, but ultimately you teach yourself, you see yourself, you go yourself. Um, and that is his uh, conception of the role of the teacher. From many, we must become one. Only so do we attain to knowledge of that which is principle and unity. And the way is also treated as the Platonic ascent of love. They'll find that in one six, And there are certain uh, references to possible techniques and possible aids and the path that existed in the world in Plotinus's time. There's a passage uh, in uh, 5, 8, 11, page 422, where he speaks of the image of a god which is first seen outside, then internalised, then identified with, and then more or less passed beyond and he also speaks in 167, page 52, of the mysteries, uh, the mystery religions of ancient Greece, as a means also of moving towards this kind of knowledge. He says you, you leave behind your clothing, you leave behind your external identity, you move inwards towards the experience of the one, and you move alone into your own inner nature as well as into the, um, uh, the uh, actual course of the mystery and then uh, he also uh, analyzes the whole business as the uh, in terms of what I suppose one would later, later know as the via negativa which comes out of Protinus ultimately in 6, 8, 11 uh, pages 5, 2, 3 to 4 uh, I think I am going to uh, leave most of the, ne of the next lot of quotations out time is getting on I think uh, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder, can I get them in? Let me see how long they are. Do you want any more quotations, or have you had enough of them? Oh, actually, I've had enough. Oh, it's too much. I expect us to sit here listening to all this. Sorry, this is getting a bit crazy. Yeah. Okay, okay. Well, can, can I add? Um, uh, three other points and one quotation. Okay, I'll cut myself down to one. Um, he does speak of our finding ourselves as knowing our source. The two go together. Finding ourselves is knowing our source. You'll find that in 697, page 544. He defines the one, as I mentioned earlier in the first lecture, in terms of not this, not this, niti, niti. Uh, 3, 8, 10, 2, 4, 6, you'll find that. And he also speaks of the one. You see, the one is not, you, or you speak of it as rest in the sense that it's not involved in movement in this sense, but it is neither rest nor movement. Neither, neither arrest nor motion and do not call it fixity, as Eliot put it. It is beyond that kind of dichotomy. So one of the words he uses for it is dynamis, dynamic. It's, the, it's a dynamic rest. It 
it doesn't, it's not bounded by that sort of, of distinction. And you'll find that in 3, 8, 10, page 2, 4, 5. And then there's one other thing which I was going to um, quote, and that was the thing which I had mentioned before, but uh, speaking of this, he says, this we can but name the unity, indicating it to each other by a designation that points to the concept of its partlessness, while we are in reality striving to bring our own minds to unity. Very important in describing that, you're not really talking about that, you're talking about your own mind, trying to striving to bring your own mind to unity. We are not to think of such unity and partlessness as beyond belong to a point or monad, the veritable unity is the source of all such quantity, which could not exist unless there first there existed being and beings prior. We are not then to think in the order of point and monad, but to use these in their simplicity and their rejection of magnitude and partition as symbols for the higher concept. In other words, it's, it's not one in the, in the mathematical sense. Um, I was going to tack on here a certain amount uh, out of the Godapadas Karika. I'll have to try and get that in later. But the, it, it's a completely different approach in terms of a different tradition. But these distinctions between the levels of consciousness that are there in Plotinus are also there in Godapada, as you would expect. Um, probably you don't... Most of you don't know about Godapada, but anyway, the, the, the Karika is a, is a commentary on one of the, on the Mandukya Upanishad. But what it is basically is a sort of book of instructions for growth in consciousness. It's meant to be used by people who are practicing meditation techniques and things, but it's, it's, it's therefore couched in a very different kind of language and different frame of reference from Plotinus. But it's interesting that in spite of these differences, he's clearly talking about the same things. He says exactly the same sort of thing all the way through. And uh, this is quite reassuring. You know, it's not... Uh, if it's a dream, it's not just Plotinus's dream. All right, I've been uh, in, in told that uh, I should allow time for questions, so I now allow time for questions. Is that all right? Yep. Um, one of the kind of crimes have been coming to me, do you think it's the point at which we both realise that our knowledge of the zero or the one is zero, and at the same time stop trying to keep it out from penetrating our psychophysical um, experiences. When we do that, when we let this unknowable penetrate us, and recognize it is unknowable, mm. then we come to a kind of knowledge, that the knowledge of the one penetrating and Enlivening our Yes, that that is true. You mentioned, I think it was last week, wasn't it? One of the previous weeks, you mentioned this business about going there first. Uh, if you follow that course and you, you merge with the one, everything outside disappears. There is no subject, there is no object, there is no time, there is no space, there is no cosmos. There's just pure awareness. If you then come out from that, or if you go through this, and you manage to rest on this level and have that, then you get 
what you're talking about. No, you can you can you can in the sense that it is possible to move to it very fast. Well, it's always that you can't you can't work it. I mean, you can't. Um, there are two, there are two things here. One is that oh, this is going to get complicated. Uh, if you are pursuing a spiritual discipline, you are in a sense acting, and acting to know the one within yourself. In that sense, you are not simply just sitting down and letting something penetrate you. If you do that, um, you... Well, it depends. It depends where you start from, what kind of person you are, but you can end up by being terribly passive and all sorts of things. But yes, it is possible to do that. When, when, you have, when this has begun to be experienced on these levels, then that is how it is. That is perfectly true. Uh, the best way of reaching that stage is another matter. Quite a lot of discipline is, is, is needed for that. Um, it is true that if you start from this level, the universe is a whole. If you're moving into this level, you always move through these levels. But you can move very fast. It is possible to move warmth into that and then to come out eventually these levels are not distinct. To be here is also to be there and to be here. They, they, they come together. But that is really a later stage, well, later from our point of view. It's very unknowable, absolutely. It's very tempting, isn't it? And so we, we put a lot of effort in keeping it out. Rather, we cut out the whole we can cope with, right from the time of the babies and the woman. So we, we have gradually to stop cutting out well, there's truth in that. I mean, the only thing that prevents you... Um, there's, again, one of the quotations I missed, but somewhere or other, Plotinus uh, says something of this effect, that you're being entangled with time and memory and so on, and centred on the ego, is the thing that prevents this level from being. You're being present to it all the time. That is absolutely true. Yes, that is absolutely true. Uh, and it is all these encumbrances that, that do keep this out of your uh, everyday awareness. But the only, tr only thing is that you have to be very delicate in trying to handle these encumbrances. If you start by trying to discipline yourself on this level, you can very easily get hooked on this level. Uh, you, know, you devote so much time to making sure that you don't drink, don't smoke, don't eat too much, get up early in the mornings and lead a righteous life that you become an absolute monster. <laughs> uh, and uh, that, that is why it's, a, it's really, as a, uh, I mean, this is where the role of the teacher comes in. Uh, I've often thought, uh, I, mean, I don't know what techniques Plotinus may or may not have had. I think he probably did have some. I think Plato had some. But the mere fact that you were in the presence of somebody like Plotinus would have a cultivating effect and it would, would tend to make you be natural. I mean, for heaven's sake, whatever else we are, do let us be natural. I mean, don't let us be strained and kind of make an external idea of something and then hammer and hammer and hammer and hammer at it, which is it, it pushes you further and further away from what you are. Um, you, if you stop, uh, you have to try without trying. <laughs> Does that make sense? It's it, it's it's easy, but it's only easy um, because it's difficult, and it's only difficult because it's easy. It, it it's complete relaxation is the wrong word. It's complete restfulness. I know. 
It's, it's dynamic, but it's restful, yes, yes. If, if there is a glimpse of this level, the external levels fall away. Um, uh, the the Pratina speaks somewhere or other as uh, all good wisdom and all these things being merely purification. And of course, yes, it is purification, and this level is the thing which is the main purifier. Yeah. Can I ask how, um, in the Sutta, it says that he is aware of well I, mean, I, I quoted that bit of the Pashanti bit you know the, the inner level of, of, of cognition where subject and object are one which is pre-verbal mm-hmm. well I think he was perfectly aware that, that was the source of language and I think that he thought of, of the discursive level of language as an, um, it, it goes back to the time years doesn't it as, uh, as time as a moving image of eternity uh, language as mo- a moving image whose discursivity had to be risen above but was necessary on the level on which it was. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, you, you said earlier when you come back to this life in a dream when you need to wake up with, with, which um, suggests that the well, the 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 um, it goes back to two things. One is the Neoplatonic notion that the soul descending into Hades into the underworld is in fact being born in this world it's the thing that Kathleen uses in connection with Blake, that this world is Hades this is the underworld and that when we are born to this world we die to our own spiritual nature to some degree and um, this is, is, is where you get dipped in the, in the river of Lethe in the uh, myth of Ur at the end of the Republic um, and then the, the other aspect is the aspect which I suppose is embodied most clearly in the myth of the cave in the Republic. That is to say the philosopher, the lover of wisdom or the pursuer of truth comes down into the cave, grabs hold of the uh, person who is pinioned and objectively focused and turns them round, converts them in the literal sense, turns them round so that they are facing in the other direction. And, uh, said Plato, they get jolly annoyed about it too. Uh, of course, they, they, they would. It's disturbing. It's upsetting. But the call to awaken comes from those who are themselves awakened or awakening. And it is a call um, to see or experience not just this externalized level here, but also the level of unitive cognition on the eternal level of, of, of life and Ultimately, the non-differentiation of that which is beyond time and eternity. Oh yes, 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 certainly, certainly. I mean, Protinus himself in that passage is the caller. Right. <laughs> so yes, and he was human. Yeah. Right. Sorry, can I? Uh, I was just going to say that the phrase "Who knows whether to live be not to die and to die to live." Oh yes, the Socrates. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And it seems to be echoed through yes. the, the Platonic, uh, let alone the Neoplatonic yes. uh, literature. 
and you find that in Gaurapada too. I mean, this, this, was, this was some of the things I wanted to get into. Very, very much so. I mean, there's a, the, the whole description of, of waking up from Maya is very close to some of the things that Plotinus says. And uh, the, the analysis, though, is more systematic and more in terms of states of consciousness as we regularly experience them and uh, what can change about these. I will have to come back to that because I promised somewhere or other in, in writing <laughs> and therefore could be held to it that I would uh, pull some of these people in. So I just had to pull, pull it in somewhere, perhaps in the, in the last lecture, I don't know. But uh, I mean, the, the fun aspects of this I have missed out. As I said, I've, I've missed out the whole idea of life as play, of life as drama, of life as dance and music. Uh, the, the cosmic dance, all that stuff is missed here. Uh, and I've also missed out the Plotinian formulations of reincarnation and karma, as one would call them now. Um, uh, what is the Greek word for it? Um, the, the retribution. He, he speaks, he thinks of it more in terms of something unpleasant than pleasant, but uh, at least the instances he takes in that passages where he discusses it in that way around. But uh, the, the, he's got all that in him. And the, the, I mean, this was part of the European idea system until, I suppose, origin. And the, um, the, I, w I wanted to, well, we'll have to go into that, I'll go into it next week, but uh, I was rather uh, um, taken, well, I, I was, a, what's the word I want, not affronted quite, but you know, rather my, my hackles rose at one of the things which was, said in, in one of the lectures in the Nero Centre by, the, what's his name, that poet, poet fellow, the translator of Tagore, that uh, the, Tagore had rejected the idea of reincarnation and, and he spoke, the, the, the speaker spoke of something completely irrational. It's no more irrational than any other concept of human life. And as soon as you put it down and begin to analyse it out, you can see why. No more irrational. People use rational and irrational as a bludgeon. Oh, you're being irrational. Yeah, um, it's just a way of shutting people up. And one should never be scared of this. Uh, let us look at what is meant by rationality and what grounds there are for making this kind of assertion. When you begin to look at them in this sort of case, the grounds disappear. And I think it's necessary to do that. Not because I particularly want you to believe in reincarnation. Personally, I couldn't care less. It doesn't seem to me to matter whether you believe in it or not. But um, at least you ought to keep an open mind, it seems to me, and realise that there is no closed issue on it where this is concerned. And it's not particularly rational. I would have thought in many ways it's extremely rational. It's more rational than many of the other ideas. Yeah? distinguish from the world's individuals? Sorry? Does distinguish Oh, yes. Yes, he does. Um, he does distinguish between the two. I think he would regard as the one, the one within the other, both way rounds, but, uh, ways round. But he does speak of the, um, the archetype of the human being as going back to this level. And he does seem to feel that there is some kind of individualization, even on this level, which is reflected in the individuality down, down here. 
but whether he means by that individuality the surface personality is a different matter because he also speaks, rather as the Gita does, uh, of discarding a suit of clothes in, during the process of reincarnation. He uses the same image. And he does speak of the self raised to splendor and unrecognizable when it moves into this level. So the individuality, yes, it has an individual archetype, but the individual archetype is not necessarily the person you know. Or does that make that clear? Sorry, you were... Yeah. And recently I came across in Ovid that Saturn was the ruler of the Golden Age. Yes. If everyone thinks of this intellectual yes. principle that's very beautiful. That fits it. Yes. yes, it fits very well. And there's another thing which has always puzzled me, but I think I might have liked it, and I wonder what you thought. When Saturn castrated Uranus from the uh, blood of the castrated genitals arise Yes. in the sea, which has always possibly to really understand... Well, the sea is usually interpreted, at least in, by most of the Neoplatonic writers, as the sea of time and space. And interestingly, uh, as usual, Plotinus is not absolutely consistent in these myths. He doesn't regard them as rigid dogmas. So he tends to speak of the world's soul on most occasions as Zeus, but sometimes he calls it as Aphrodite. Yes, I was thinking, as I heard you speak, I thought, oh, and that myth is implied, yes. That's right. Yes, that's what he. That's what. That's what he says. Yes. Yes, he does. Intelligibility and, and also creative power or creative formative power. It's, it's formative power in the sense that the form comes out and is shaped in an external level via that. Yes, yes, exactly, yes. And, uh, and he takes that down into great detail. He said that, uh, the, uh, as did Jacob Burma, that water on this level is a reflection of water on this level. Um, and that, uh, so on, ev- everything, the sky and the lot, have a celestial counterpart, but the, the celestial counterpart is much purer. And Jacob Burma said exactly the same sort of thing. He said, you know, if you go onto the inner levels and you experience water, it is not this uh, viscous thick, resistant kind of fluid. It is pure flowing. And it's the sort of thing, I think, that um, Yogananda was talking about. I, I mentioned in connection with this as the, the world where there is light, and Yogananda speaking of um, his ability to switch over to experience everything in, in terms of light. Uh, was it in a lecture I mentioned this, or was it in one of the seminars? Anyway, Yogananda's autobiography of a yogi has got a lot of stuff in it, but um, one of the experiences of this sort of level is the experiences of the intelligible light. And it is possible to experience both the external cosmos as pervaded by this light. I've done that, so I know that's possible. Um, or had it, had it happened to me. Um, but it, according to Yogananda, it is also possible, and according to Kathleen Rain, it is also possible to experience uh, the objective world in terms of this flow of light. I mean, Kathleen's experience of the higher synth, where the inner... Um, inner nature of it was experienced as a slow flow of incredibly pure light. And I've heard many people speak of that kind of experience. And Yogananda said that um, this kind of experience became available to him whenever he wanted. He could switch levels whenever he wanted by an act of will. And he said he spent months 
of his life on that level. And when he looked at a river, for instance, he experienced the river as a river of light flowing over sands of light. So there is differentiation in that case within the light, but it is light. And I can believe that to be possible because uh, on the purely gross level, the most beautiful thing I ever saw was a washhand basin of pedestal. And the reason why it was so beautiful was that it was absolutely pervaded by this this light. It, uh, it's different from ordinary light, but it was absolutely beautiful, incredibly beautiful. But it was still there as a washhand basin and pedestal. I mean, I had no urge to wash in it. I was just simply quiet and you, you go quiet on these occasions. You have no movement. You are fulfilled. Uh, but uh, it was there as an object. And had I wished to do so, I could have washed in it. It was a hand basin, all right. There was no doubt about it, the hand basin. And an ordinary one at that. But it was just pervaded with this extraordinary light. It was magnificent. And you can also experience it by merging with it. That is also possible. You get, you get, there's a long description of that in, well, some, in, some bits and pieces in Jakob Berman, but there's a long description in St. Simeon the New Theologian, if you want that. Um, it, it's in the middle of one of his works. I've, I've got a translation of it, but I think I probably left it in Sweden. I do have a translation of it. If any of you want that, uh, I can get it sent over in due course. But it, it's, a, it's a marvelous description of plunging and losing yourself in a great ocean of light. Um, Stephen is signalling to me that I must dry up, shut up and go home. Look, I'm sorry, it has been rather heavy, I did warn you. But the, the, um, the, the, the next time you'll get more of the fun bit, you know, all, all these sort of the drama of life and the dance of life and uh, also art, which uh, gives a bit of lightness to all this metaphysical stuff. But I thought I had to try and go through this on an abstract level first so that you then got some sort of framework on which to, to grasp what he says about art. Otherwise, it's, it'll just degenerate into gooey, gooey, goody, goody feeling, which is fine, but not enough. Not enough. One needs reality. And then feeling generated from reality, fine. But feeling can also be a means of hiding reality. And at that point, it's just a nuisance. Oh, there we are. Thank you. Thank you.